You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our Father, we thank you for this morning, for the safety that you provided in us coming here. Thank you for the freedom and the opportunity to gather here together as your people around your word. We pray for a safe travel for all those who are on the road now and coming to church later on. And we ask God that you would watch over them, watch over also this Sunday school class, the teaching and all that is done here. May it honor you and glorify you. And we pray that you would be exalted through our time together. Give us clarity of thought and mind and heart that we might... um, live lives that are honorable and pleasing in your sight. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, well, the, uh, I'm teaching Sunday school today because Jess walked into my office on Tuesday this last week and he said, I've got a message that I would love to preach sometime if you are ever open to me preaching. So if you need a break, and I said, well, if you want to do it this Sunday, you can do it this Sunday, and that would free up Friday and Saturday for me to spend a little bit more time with my family around Christmas. So he was gracious enough to do that, and it worked out really good for me, but he asked that I take Sunday school. So... I had a couple of ideas of some things I wanted to do for Sunday school. One of them is a question and answer, which we've done before, and but I want to do that at the end. I don't want to take up the whole time with that. Just in, so if you have questions, maybe pertaining to some of the things that we've talked about in recent weeks in the preaching or in Sunday school, then kind of get those in the back of your mind. But we're going to begin today with doing something that um, is a little bit different. I did this a couple of years ago. Today is the last Sunday of 2008, and January 1st begins, of course, the new year. And how many of you make New Year's resolutions every year? Nobody? That's superstitious? You think it's bad luck to be superstitious, do you? <laughs> Something going to break? Okay, well, you probably heard, and I, I did a newsletter article a few, um, I think it was last January or the January before, on the 70 resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And I try and read through those once a year just to sort of refresh my mind and remind myself of what kind of a man he was. <clears throat> so I want to give you a couple of them today. I want to talk just a little bit about Jonathan Edwards, his 70 resolutions, and then the type of life he lived and how that, how that played out for him, what it meant for him and the, the impact that it had. This is a good biography if you ever want to read. It's, it's, it's thick reading. It's not light, read it over your Wheaties type stuff. Jonathan Edwards, a new biography by Ian Murray. This is, I think, the best biography of Edwards that I've ever read. Read it about three or four years ago. And then in preparing for this morning, I went back and reread one of the chapters. And I thought, man, I've got to read that again because it was that good. The other one is Marriage to a Difficult Man by Elizabeth Dodds. And this deals with the home aspect of Jonathan Edwards, what it was like in the Edwards home and what it would be like being married to a guy like Jonathan Edwards because he was a staggering intellect and a philosopher and disciplined and and he was just off the charts in so many of the things that we consider to be masculine strengths. And this covers what it was like for Elizabeth or Sarah Edwards to be married to Jonathan Edwards. So I'm going to talk about the 70 resolutions that Edwards made. And I'm not going to read all 70 of them to you, but I want to give you a little bit of background. I'm going to read and comment on a couple of them. The 70 resolutions that Jonathan Edwards made were the first 21 of them were written at one sitting in 1722. So this is previous prior to the American Revolution even. 
by December 18th of 1722, he had written a total of 34, and then he added to them periodically, sometimes on Lord's Days or if something came to him, he would add to them until he wrote the 70th of his resolutions on August 17th, 1723, which was two months before his 20th birthday. So this is the intellectual work of somebody who had not yet even turned 20. That's what's staggering about the the resolutions of Jonathan Edwards. And you realize the passion that he had for the Lord and the affection that he had for God and the intellect that that man carried around with him. What I'm going to read to you is um, stuff that was resolved and he sought to live by before he ever turned 20 years old. Let me read and comment on a couple of them. Resolution number five. And this is one I like because I'm a big freak this way. Resolved. Oh, let me give you the introduction. He has a preamble to his resolutions. And this is significant and important. He writes, being sensible that I am unable to do anything without God's help, I do humbly entreat him by his grace to enable me to keep these resolutions so far as they are agreeable to his will for Christ's sake. And so it wasn't for him, I resolved to do this and I'm going to do this in the power of my flesh. It was, I'm unable, apart from the assistance of Christ, to do anything. And so I'm asking God for the grace and the assistance to do this so far as it is in keeping with his will for Christ's sake. So that was the attitude in which he made these resolutions. Number five, resolved never to lose one moment of time, but to improve it the most profitable way I possibly can. Now that one I like simply because I'm constantly reminded of the time that I twiddle away in a thousand different things that are absolutely meaningless. And if I could, if I could find a way to capture those moments and somehow improve them so that I'm doing the things that God would have me to do. Number six, resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Resolved to live with all my might while I do live. Every day I live it just, man, just go for broke. Number seven, resolved never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if it were the last hour of my life. That's a good one, isn't it? Number eight, Resolved to act in all respects, both speaking and doing, as if nobody had been so vile as I, and as if I had committed the same sins or had the same infirmities or failings as others, and that I will let the knowledge of their failings promote nothing but shame in myself and prove only an occasion for my confessing my own sins and misery to God. Let me interpret that for you. It means that when you see some failing in somebody else or some infirmity or some weakness or some sin, it shouldn't cause you to look down on that person, but it should cause you to reflect upon your own failings and to confess those to the Lord and to love that person as if, and to assume as if you have all of the wickedness that that individual has. That sort of takes away all the pride. Number nine, resolve to think much on all occasions of my own dying and the common circumstances which attend death. Number ten, resolved when I think, uh, resolved when I feel pain to think of the pains of martyrdom and of hell. Right? So I suffer an affliction in my back, in my arm, in my stomach, in my head, my neck, whatever it is. When I feel pain, I will think upon the afflictions of martyrdom and of death. And that sort of helps put the afflictions of your life into perspective. Skipping to number 15. Resolves never to suffer the least motions of anger to irrational beings. Resolves never to suffer the least emotions of anger at irrational beings. Your dog, cows, horses. Inanimate objects, irrational beings, right? The tractor doesn't run. The car won't start. Resolved never to suffer even the least emotions of anger toward irrational beings. Number 17, resolved that I will live so as I shall wish I had done when I came to die. Right? Everybody on their deathbed says, oh, I wish I had done this. Well, Edwards looked forward and he says, when I'm on my deathbed, I'm going to resolve now to live 
as I will wish I had lived when I'm at the end of my life. Number 19, resolve never to do anything which I should be afraid to do if I expected it would not be above an hour before I should hear the last trump. Resolve never to do anything which I would be afraid to do if I expected within the hour to hear the last trumpet and to go to be with the Lord. Number 20, resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. Um, I wish I could find that. Where did I? Is that in this book? I thought I highlighted it last night, but I might, I might not have. Uh, Edwards, well, this is for all you dieters who at the beginning of every year you, you purpose to lose a bunch of weight and diet. This is your resolutions. Number 20, resolve to maintain the strictest temperance in eating and drinking. That's your New Year's resolution for dieting. The strictest temperance in eating and drinking. And Edwards used to say, in fact, he wrote down in one of his journals, I will only eat those things which will be digested quickly, and which are light and will be digested quickly. And he used to take a plate of food that was just meager pickings by anybody's standard, and he would just sort of pick at that. He hardly ate anything his whole life. Reason being, he said, is because by doing this, I will conserve time, number one, by not by keeping my mind clear instead of being, you know, how you eat a bunch and then you're sort of sleepy and groggy. He said, if I do this, I will keep my mind clear and thus I'll redeem time for myself. Second, I'll live longer by doing this. And third, he would give less time to eating and all of the things that go with eating and digesting food. Edwards lived along. This is yeah, this is, that's an interesting question. How long did Edwards live? Edwards lived, I think, to 55 years old. Which, considering the mortality rate of other men in the 1700s, was a long time, but it's an early, it was an early death. And the reason he died early, he died actually from a smallpox vaccination gone wrong. So he got a smallpox vaccination, that's how, that's what killed Edwards. He got sick after that and he died from the... What's that? He didn't eat enough to keep him alive. Well, he lived a long, healthy life and, and was healthy all the way up until... And the, and the family itself, and I'll get into this in just a second, but let me cover a couple more resolutions. Do you have another question? <laughs> 28, you see, the, this is the thing about men like Edwards, Spurgeon, Whitfield, Luther, Calvin, all these guys, guys that we admire. I don't think, I think that their examples are examples that we should admire, look up to, and try and emulate to the best of our ability, but not everybody's a Jonathan Edwards. So I've given up hope, I think, in my life of trying to be like Jonathan Edwards. I look at his example and I say, that's something that I would love to implement some of those principles and strive to be that. But I refuse to compare myself to him and get guilty for not being like he was. Because I believe that God gifts certain men throughout church history in certain ways that they are above and beyond the average man. And they just have un- uncanny capacities, like Spurgeon. If every preacher tried to compare himself to Spurgeon, I would resign, Jess would resign, and we'd all resign. We'd be done. It'd be over with if we thought we had to live up to Spurgeon's example. <clears throat> so, don't feel guilty. I'm just kind of doing this to inspire you, not guilt you. Number 28. Resolve to study the Scriptures so steadily, constantly, and frequently as that I may find and plainly perceive myself to grow in the knowledge of the same. And then number 34, resolved always to do what I can towards making, maintaining, and establishing peace when it can be without overbalancing detriment in other respects. So those were... Oh, no, I read number 33. Number 34 is the one I want to read. Resolved in narrations... Never to speak anything but the pure and simple verity or truth. Resolved in narrations, that's storytelling. Resolved when I tell a story, never to say anything but the pure and simple truth. Now that resolution goes a long way. So we're talking about fishing and hunting and all the other good stuff that we do that we like to talk about. Uh, Carol. 
Yeah, he was compulsive. Yeah, Edwards was kind of a quirky individual, and he was compulsive in that sense. But for Edwards, all of his resolutions were simply the outworking of him working out his salvation. When you read the resolutions, there's nothing in it that's unbiblical. It's him saying, this is how I'm going to try and apply biblical truth to my own sanctification in life. And so these became something. And there's other resolutions in here where he says, I resolve to read these and evaluate my life every week, every month, and at the end of every year. So... For him, this was a constant checklist by which, and this was not uncommon, by the way, a lot of Christians did this. And a lot of Christians did, made resolutions like Edwards's for the purpose of, of keeping themselves in check and charting their course and making goals and giving themselves a standard by which to live and the working out of their salvation. Uh, let me read you something about the Edwards's family, because this is, that's what this book, Marriage to a Difficult Man, is about. is primarily Sarah Edwards and how she was married to Jonathan and what that looked like in the home, and how they raised their kids. The Edwards family had 11 children. All of them lived, which itself was a a phenomenal accomplishment since, uh, since at the time, mortality rate, even in the city of London, in some sections, was 100%. Infant mortality rate. Ezra Stiles had 10 children and only four lived. He himself never forgot his shock when he was six years old and watched his baby brother expire just as his mother was dressing him to go to church. Cotton Mather, a Puritan that lived at the time of, around the time of Jonathan Edwards, he had 15 children and only two lived. Judge Sewell had 14 and only three survived. So that's the type of infant mortality rate that you had in the New England colonies at that time. The Edwards family had 11 children. All of them survived. None of them died in infancy. And that created a lot of resentment in the town when other mothers were burying their children almost as fast as they could have them. Another thing that was kind of odd about the Edwards' family is that they became the subject of jokes. And I've shared this before. It was believed at that time that a child was born on the same day that it was conceived. And there were pastors that would not baptize, because infant baptism was practiced in New England at that time because of the denominational influences and Puritan influences. So they baptized babies. Um, because they were reformed in covenant perspective. But there were pastors who would not baptize any infants born on the Lord's Day because they believed that it was wrong for a pastor and his wife or anybody to be having marital relations on the Lord's Day. Well, six of the Edwards' 11 children were born on a Sunday. So that created a lot of jesting in the town and a lot of joking that here was this very somber, very resolute, very godly, very intellectual, philosophical pastor that everybody looked up to in New Hampton who was conceiving children on the Lord's Day. And so it created a lot of jokes. I want to read to you a study that was done in 1900. A.E. Winship tracked down 1,400 of the Edwards' descendants and published a study of the Edwards' children in contrast to the Jukes' family. Now, the Jukes' family was a notorious clan who cost New York State a total of $1.25 million in welfare and custodial charges. Jukes wasn't actually the name of the other family. The word means, Jukes means to roost, and it was used about this other family because the family were social floaters with no home or rest. They all originated with one immigrant who settled in upstate New York in 1720 and produced a tribe of idleness, ignorance, and vulgarity. So Winship did this study of the descendants of Jonathan Edwards compared to the descendants of the Jukes family. Winship learned that a descendant of the Edwardses presided over the New York Prison Commission in 1874 when it was conducted an inquiry into the Jukes matter. So there was a New York State Prison Commission that did a study into the Jukes family and tried to find out why are these guys 
costing us so much in welfare, so much in prison costs, so much in upkeep, this one family. Out of the 1,200 Jukes descendants, only 20 had ever had gainful employment. The others were either criminals or lived on state aid. So 20 out of 1,200 had ever had gainful employment. Whereas the Edwards' family had contributed astonishing riches to the American scene. Quote, whatever the family has done, it has done ably and nobly, Winship contended. And he went on, much of the capacity and talent, intensity and character of the more than 1,400 of the Edwards family is due to Miss Edwards. By 1900, when Winship made his study, this single marriage between Jonathan and Sarah Edwards had produced, listen to this, 13 college presidents, 65 professors, 100 lawyers, and a dean of an outstanding law school, 30 judges, 66 physicians, and the dean of a medical school, 80 holders of public office, including three United States senators, mayors of three large cities, governors of three states, a vice president of the United States, and a controller of the United States Treasury. Almost all of the men had college degrees and many completed graduate work in a time when this was unusual. The women were repeatedly described as great readers or highly intelligent, although girls were not sent to college then. Members of the Edwards' family, of those 1,400 kids, wrote 135 books, ranging from five years in an English university to a tome on butterflies of North America. They edited 18 journals and periodicals. They entered into the ministry in platoons and sent 100 missionaries overseas, as well as stocking many mission boards with lay trustees. Many large banks, banking houses, and insurance companies have been directed by them. They've been owners of superintendents of large coal mines, of large iron plants, and vast oil interests in silver mines. There is scarcely any great American industry that has not had one of this family among its chief promoters. The family has cost the country nothing in pauperism, nothing in crime, nothing in hospital or asylum service, and on the contrary, this family presents the highest usefulness. That's Jonathan Edwards. So, if you live by the 70 resolutions, then that will be your life too. No, it won't. Yeah, Sarah Edwards is a very smart, smart lady too. Now, I share that with you not to intimidate you, but just because it's a, a, a I think it's an interesting historical portrait of a man that is just his influence on American culture. It, listen, if Jonathan Edwards had never been born, you can, I think you could safely say that the American Revolution would have never taken place. Because had it not been for Jonathan Edwards, you would not have had the Great Awakening. And had you not had the Great Awakening, you would have never had the American Revolution. It's that simple. You would have had awakenings, but God used that man in a unique way to basically shape all of Western society and government and culture to where it is today for the, for the good. It's a fascinating man and a fascinating study. And I would commend either one of these books to you. This one here will be much easier reading, I think, and probably more interesting to you. It's a short sort of primer on Jonathan Edwards. Primer, primer, however you pronounce that. It's a sort of a shorter work and uh, much more, I think, uh, easily digested than, than the longer book. Ian Murray, is a, he, he writes uh, out of London, and so there's something about how Ian Murray writes that it takes me about four chapters to finally click in and really start to understand. He, he writes in very long sentences, sometimes paragraphs long. Some of the sentences can go on for days, and it just it takes a while to kind of put it all together and kind of get into how he writes. But the other book I would recommend to you, and if you want to borrow it, you can. 
So now, question and answer, Q&A. you have questions about Jonathan Edwards or anything that we talked about in the last few weeks as far as sermon or Sunday school goes, or any other question that you, that you got that you're ready for? None? Lanny? Lanny's got them. No, that's okay. Lanny's usually got them written down. Okay. Let's, let's do with it. Luke, where are we? Six? There's not 26 chapters in Luke. Luke 6, 26? The chapter? I think I know what the passage you're talking about is, and if you haven't. Why would they ask Jesus to leave? Um, I think, and this is without looking at the context, why when Jesus healed the man did they ask Jesus to leave? Are you talking about the Gadarene demoniac when they asked him to leave after he cast the demons out into the swine? Right, they asked him to leave. Uh, I, I think there could be more than one thing going on there, why they asked him, Jesus to leave. Number one, it could be because he had just cost their industry a lot of money with all the hogs running off the cliff. That could be it. Second, I think it's probably the natural response of the sinful man, just like Peter, when Jesus calmed the storm. Peter said, Lord, depart from me, a wicked man. What did he say? Depart from me, Lord, I'm a wicked man. I think that that is the natural heart response of a man that does not want to repent of their sin, but is confronted with who Christ is. They would sooner either kill him or be out of his presence because they don't want to be around him. And I think in the Gospel of Luke that that's probably what you have going on. That is, rather than repenting and acknowledging who he is, these men were more willing that he should just simply get out of their sight, out of sight, out of mind. If he's gone, I don't have to deal with him. And... It's the, I think it's the disgust that the unregenerate man has for the Savior. Yeah. Right. Causing disturbance and causing uh, causing the disturbance, I think, is one of them. But it's also the you know, when, when people in the Bible get a glimpse of who Christ is in his glory, it, well, it's, it's one of two things. It, most of the time, it's repulsed. they're repulsed by that. It's Isaiah, Lord, I'm undone. You know, and they trembles and he, he just comes undone. Woe to me, I'm a sinful man, a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. When you see who Christ is and you come to understand who he is, there is that repulsion that the natural man has to the glory of God. We, it's, we have this idea in our minds that Sinful people are just drawn to God and that all of humanity is seeking after God. But that's not the case. All of humanity is running away from the Lord. So unless there's a work of grace in the heart, sinful man does not, is not drawn to holiness. Sinful man doesn't desire righteousness or holiness. And so in the case of people who did not want to be around Christ, I think that that's probably the best way of understanding what was going on there. Sinful men did not want to be in the presence of Christ. No sinful person does. Because men don't come to the light because the light exposes that their deeds are evil. So if they have the light there, they would just soon ask the light to leave and deal with the evil of their own hearts. Yeah. 
Right. There comes a point where you you don't cast your pearls before swine. Yeah. Any other questions? Explain, how do you explain what to somebody who, what am I, which? Yeah. The natural mindset of every individual when they get saved is Arminianism. That, that I did this. I made this decision. This is where I came to. I did this. I, because look, when I got saved, I went through all of the intellectual evidence of, of the Christian faith. I compared it to other worldviews. I looked at the evidence for the resurrection. For me, it was a very intellectual decision that I was weighing and had been weighing for about a year. And then when it finally came in conviction, I got saved. I made that decision. I committed my life to Christ. I prayed the prayer. And so when you get saved, I think the natural, the natural heart condition or mindset is, this is what I have done. God made this possible, and now I've made this decision. Right. But then over the course of time, you start to study the Scripture and see what God says about your salvation, and you start to understand, hold on a second, there was somebody who was active in this before I ever came on the scene. And so I think that there is part of the human heart that still wants to cling to, I, I did this. And I don't understand what that is. And I did for years uh, cling to that, uh, but I had this part to do in my salvation. And that's not to negate human responsibility because we are responsible to trust Christ and to turn from our sin and to believe the gospel. Those are all things that man is responsible to do. But those, the empowerment to repent and to believe the gospel and to turn from your sin and to place your faith in Christ, the empowerment of all of that is the gift of God ultimately. So did I do something? Yes, I did. But the question is, who, what was the effective cause behind me doing it? And then I think you, you eventually have to come back to the grace of God. It was certainly nothing in Jim Osmond. So how do, you, how do you explain that perspective on election and the sovereignty of God and salvation to somebody who doesn't believe that? I think you can discuss it to a certain point, but after a point, and it's get, it, more and more I get to the point where quicker and quicker I get to the point where I just say, all right, well, whatever. You don't have to agree with me. I, I don't care. Um, Right. Yeah, I, you know, when it comes to arguing with people, I used to be very argumentative. And the more I grow in the Lord, the less argumentative I become. And the more I just, to say I don't care whether people agree with me or not is not really it. But I've I've given up hope that I'm the person that's going to change their mind on it. And so I've become more and more just, I mean, there are people in our congregation here. There's nobody in this congregation that agrees with me 100% on everything. I don't even agree with myself 100% on everything. My wife doesn't agree with me 100% on anything. 
So, but my, my, I don't have an agenda to change anybody's mind on any of those things. And I could go to a dozen different people and argue election or argue infant baptism or argue end times events with them. And I just don't have any desire to do that. And so when people disagree, if they want to have an intelligent discussion and weigh it out, I'm always game for that. But I've given up hope on being the one to try and change people's minds. I'll lay out my ideas and my facts and reason with them. But when it comes to a point of having an argument, I'm, I'm just not up for that. <laughs> well, sometimes you can give up hope on an argument and just say, I'm not, you know, but then they want to keep going and keep going. And yeah. No, your view of election does not. There are Minions who are saved. But there's two. There's two different styles of Arminian. I say there are a lot of Arminians that are saved. I think most people are Arminians and they are saved. The Christians who are Arminians are saved. But there's the Arminian who says, I'm working and I'm trusting and I'm doing and this is my work and I'm believing and I'm continuing and I'm persevering in the faith. And these are the things that I'm doing and I'm trusting in those things to save me. That person is not saved because they're not trusting in Christ to save them. They're still trusting in their works. But there's the other person who's cast all of their trust and hope in Christ and they're saved, they're born again and regenerate, but they think that they think that it was their choice that did this and that God elected them on the basis of that choice. That's two different approaches to salvation. The one is trusting in Christ, but believing that God's election was based upon what they would do. The other is not trusting in Christ at all. They simply believe God made salvation possible, but now it's up to all of us. And I would put most Roman Catholics in that camp. Most Roman Catholics believe God has made salvation possible. He has given us enough grace to work our way into heaven. That's the, that's the standard Roman Catholic doctrine. But there are other Arminians who, who say, I'm trusting, and they are trusting wholly in Christ, but they're um, believing a wrong view of how the sovereignty of God affected that. Yeah. In that case, in, you know, in that case, I say it's better to have the it's better to have the love and affection of a family member than it is to win the argument or convince them of some theological point. Yeah. Right. Right. Thomas. Is there a guarantee that everybody in heaven will have a full understanding prior to heaven of the gospel message? Oh. Oh, I see. Right. Yeah. Are there going to be Arminians in heaven? I think they there will be. Will will they die Arminians or Calvinists? They'll die Arminians, and then once they get to heaven, they will agree with me. 
But before they get to heaven, is it essential that you believe all of the doctrines of the Reformation prior to getting into heaven? Justification by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone? Absolutely. But your view of infant baptism, I think, is irrelevant, provided it doesn't affect your view of justification. It's, the gospel is not what do you believe about the sovereignty of God or the scope of the atonement and the perseverance of the saints. That's not the gospel. Your belief on those things is, will have ramifications in your life. So it's not that you minimize the beliefs about those issues. But what is the gospel itself? The gospel itself is very simple. And so everybody will have a true understanding of the gospel because the gospel is just, it's ABC. You're a sinner, you repent, and you believe the gospel and trust in Christ alone. So will everybody understand the full gospel before they get to heaven? Yes. But will everybody agree with me on non-essential issues? No. Such as limited atonement, right. Right. Any other questions? Was Jonathan Edwards ever baptized as an adult? Hmm. That I don't know. I know that he practiced infant baptism because that was the that was the typical approach of the Reformed Puritan Calvinistic uh, Anglican Congregationalist churches of the time. They were largely products of of um, the sort of Dutch Reform, German Reform, uh, Calvinistic Reform movement that came out of Europe in the 16, 15 to 1600s. So their view of the covenant and their view of infant baptism was different than ours would be. So he would have practiced infant baptism, but I don't know that he... I would assume that if he practiced infant baptism and he had been baptized as an infant, that he would not have been baptized as an adult. If you believe in infant baptism, uh, if you believe in infant baptism and you're baptized as an infant, then you get saved and you're already in the covenant, then your view would be, I already received the sign of the covenant, which was baptism, and I received it as an infant. So I don't need to be rebaptized as an adult. So there was a movement called the Anabaptist, which meant baptized again from England that believed, and they were persecuted actually by people who didn't believe in it, uh, rebaptizing believers. The Anabaptists who came out of uh, Prussia and Germany and Europe and different reform movements, they looked at scriptures and they said, well, yeah, I've been baptized as an infant, but I'm saved now and I trusted Christ now. So now I need to be baptized as a believer to take the sign of the covenant now that I'm in the covenant. And so they were rebaptized and they were just, they were persecuted and killed by, killed by the church, persecuted by the church. I don't know if well, I don't know if Spurgeon was baptized as an infant or not. Yeah. Uh, infant baptism. Do, do you have a question about infant baptism or different question? Oh, let me take this one first then. Infant baptism is based upon the belief that there is only one covenant. And that covenant includes Adam all the way through to the last saint. And there's, only, there's one group of people called in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel. But now in the New Testament, there are people who would call even Old Testament saints the church. They don't make a distinction between Old Covenant and New Covenant. So for them, circumcision was the sign of, of being in the covenant people of God back in the Old Testament. And... Passover was the continuing sign of being the people of God throughout the Old Covenant. Now when we get to the New Covenant, they don't actually think that it's new in the sense of completely different, but in addition to the Old Covenant, 
And so it is the new covenant because there are new things added to it. But now the Lord's Supper has replaced or, or communion has replaced Passover and baptism has replaced circumcision. So now they look at the Old Testament practice of circumcising infants on the eighth day as a sign of them being in the covenant community and the covenant people of God. They look at baptism as being that sign today in the new covenant that you're in the covenant under the covenant people of God. So they would look at a baby and say, we need to baptize that baby because we believe that since he's been born to Christian parents, that he's in the covenant community. And so now he's since he's in the covenant community, we need to give him the sign of the covenant, which is baptism. So we baptize the baby. And then, um, and some of them feel real strongly about circumcision as well. And then when they get old enough, they can partake of communion to, as an evidence of continuing right of the covenant. Does that make sense? So their view of baptizing infants comes largely from Old Testament practices and trying to draw parallels between baptism in the New Testament and circumcision in the Old Testament. Well, if they're, if they're trusting in, but see, I've never met, to be fair, I've never met a pedo baptist somebody who baptized infants. I've never met one who believes that the baptism of that infant guarantees salvation. Yeah, I think it's a, I think it's a false view of the covenant and what, and a false view of how, how the covenant functions in the new, in the new covenant. Jenny, did you have a question? Right. Yeah, let me deal with that in just a second. Just did you have something to add to that? Right. That's the initiation of the covenant promises and blessings as far as the Pato Baptist would be concerned. There are scripture references, and we, we dealt with this in the book of Acts, but it was before you guys showed up. In Acts chapter 18, I think, is the last time where it says that so-and-so believed in his whole household and they were baptized. And there are, I think, three times, Cornelius, uh, Gaius, and Corinth, and there was another one. There are three times when it makes reference to the whole household. And the assumption on the part of Pato Baptist is that if it mentions household, that there would have been infants in that household. But the scripture, all of the references there make it plain that baptism followed belief and that it was their household that believed. And so I think that the plain teaching of the scripture is that everybody who was in the household who was able to believe, believed and was baptized. Several years ago, I had the privilege of baptizing Drew Curry and his whole household. But none of them were infants. All of them were believers above the age of being able to trust the gospel. And I've used that as an example several times. The whole household has believed. And trusted in Christ, and so we baptized the whole household. But that doesn't, just because we were able to say we baptized the whole household, doesn't mean there were infants there. That's an assumption. But you can't assume that when the text clearly says that baptism was based upon the belief. They heard the gospel, they believed, and they were baptized with their whole household. And the assumption is not that belief on one person constitutes able to baptize the whole household, but that all who believed were baptized. All who heard, believed, and then were baptized. So, yeah, you're right. They, they See, here's what happened with the Reformation. You had the Catholic Church who was baptizing infants for a thousand years. And then the Reformation came along. And rather than reformers were battling the doctrine of justification by faith. And I don't think that they reformed enough. 
I think that they should have stepped out and said, look, the practice of infant baptism is unbiblical. But instead, they basically, I think, had a, a theology that they, that they had and created a defense for the practice of infant baptism rather than analyzing it in the light of Scripture. And I think that if you just look at it in light of Scripture, I don't think the practice of infant baptism holds up. Uh, there's no, no biblical precedent for baptizing infants. I'm dealing with this today, actually, because we have a baby dedication after the service today. So I'm actually going to clarify that a little bit. It is totally different. That's what I'm, that's what I'm teaching on at the end of the service. It's different. <clears throat> Carol. Oh, okay. Good question. Back in the days of Edwards and Spurgeon and Whitfield and those guys, Christians were more outspoken and dynamic. What has happened that has brought us to the point where that seems to be reversed, where the outspoken Christians are few and far between, and there's a large degree of apathy on the part of the church and Christians in being outspoken. Actually, let me see if I can find that quote real, real quick. I thought it was in here. Page 62. Oh, here it is. I use this book so much my inside pictures are falling out. Uh, this is Edwards' Edwards's fullest account of Northampton's participation in the Great Awakening is contained in a letter he wrote of, to one of the ministers of Boston. In this letter, he commences by speaking of the great and abiding alteration in the town since the great work of God in 1735. Quote, the youth of the community were more free of revelry, frolicking, profane, and licentious conversation and lewd songs than they had been in 60 years. Does it sound like today? It does sound like today. One of the things, and I read that just for the sake of pointing out, a lot of times we read of the, these great men, Whitfield, Spurgeon, Calvin Luther, and we think that that was, the, that was the common type of person in those days. And it, the exact opposite is the case. They stand out just as men like John MacArthur and Ray Stedman and some of the great men of our day stand out. The general, perp, the general climate of the church was before the time of the Great Awakening, shortly after the time of the Great Awakening, one of apathy that these men wrote a lot about. The general climate is one of apathy. Christians don't have a hunger for spiritual things. They, they don't stand up in their public witness. They, just, they, they indulge in sin. They're compromising with the world. And these guys lamented those things. So a lot of times when we read biographies of great men of the past, we can fall into the trap of thinking, boy, that's what everybody was like back then. But these guys stood out back then just as they would today. So I don't think anything has happened that has brought us to the point where the majority of us are apathetic towards spiritual things. I think that that's just the case that has been and always always has been. It was before the Reformation, after the Reformation, before Edwards' time, after Edwards' time. There's just There are very unique periods, the Great Awakening, the Second Great Awakening. There are very unique periods in church history where the fire burned hot and bright in the majority of the church. But that was not always the case. Does that help? I don't know what causes it. I think uh, sometimes you just have a large number of people who are comfortable in the church and they can be unbelievers and think that they're believers or try and play the part of believers. And so you can't expect people who are unbelievers to have any kind of spiritual fire. 
You had that in the Great Awakening, before the Great Awakening in the 1730s. Yeah, I, I don't know. The question was, doesn't Geisler have a book about standing up for your faith, like you're talking about? He, he may. I'm not sure what book he's published recently. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah. Yeah, the the fear of man could be one re, one thing that plays into that state of apathy and and uh, disingenuousness with among Christians. Uh, we're running out of time. Jess, did you have a comment? Oh, okay. Yeah, just Jess had a question that was asked that he wanted to answer if we had time. But I, I fear it'll probably take more than three or four minutes, so we'll. Uh, We'll wrap it up. Let's close in prayer. Has anybody had one other quick thing? No? All right. Father, we are grateful to You for Your goodness and thank You that You show it in so many ways And this day and our time here together and our fellowship one with another is evidence of Your goodness to us. We thank You that we can have that in Christ, that we can discuss these things and, and enjoy the fellowship around Your Word. And we pray that our time here has been profitable and encouraging. And we ask God that You would be um, in our service, which is to follow and bless the preaching of Your Word and the teaching of it that it might honor you through edifying and equipping the saints. We desire this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, Thank you for listening.